to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. God's people at this stage, when Isaiah is looking into the future and seeing them in bondage in Babylon, in fulfillment of all that God had said that was going to happen to them, now God addresses them as a people in bondage. They certainly were a people who needed help from God. They were in a sorry state as Isaiah looks upon them now in bondage in Babylon, having been the victim of Nebuchadnezzar's assault upon the city of Jerusalem and the land of Judah, the cream of the nation, having been taken away into the land of Babylon. And they had lost so much. They had lost their youth. They had lost Jerusalem, their capital city, which now lay in ruins. You'll remember it was to this situation that Nehemiah and Ezra returned uh, 70 years later in order to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But now as they sat by the rivers of Babylon, Jerusalem lay in ruins. They had lost their temple, and it also was in ruins. But perhaps the most important thing by this time to which Isaiah addresses himself late on in the captivity, they had lost heart as well. Now that is an ultimate stage for people to get to. When you get a whole nation like that, somebody wrote to me about one of the Eastern European countries and said it was not so much that they were in grinding poverty or living under tyranny. It was that they had lost heart and they had lost hope. And that, of course, is what the situation was amongst God's people in Babylon. And it is to them that Isaiah is now sent to bring this message of comfort and hope. And that's why the second half of Isaiah is frequently called the book of consolation. And it begins with these very words, comfort, comfort my people says your God, speak to the heart of Jerusalem and tell them that their warfare is accomplished, their iniquity is pardoned, they have received from the Lord's hand double for all their sins. And now there is hope, hope of redemption, hope of God's grace uh, upon them. Now in chapter 40, that message concentrated on the greatness of God and the hope that they would find there. Isaiah urges them to behold your God. Lift up your voice, say to Zion, behold your God. And they were to behold God in all his sovereign greatness, able to bring them redemption even in Babylon. And in chapter 41, he begins to unfold what this uniquely great God will do for his people. And at the very beginning of chapter 41, uh, Isaiah summons all the nations, uh, the pagan nations as well as the people of God before him to a place of judgment. It is really not so much a place of um, 
judicial pronouncement so much as a place of debate. You know how law courts are places of debate. Well, here is God debating, as it were, with the godless and with his own people. And you'll find the language of debate runs through so much of chapter 41. But you know he calls it at the end of verse 1, the place of judgment. Let us meet together at the place of judgment, the end of verse 1. There is obviously a slightly sarcastic note in the second line of verse 1. God renews the strength of the weak. Uh, He has assured us at the end of chapter 40 in the case of his own people, and now he challenges the godless nations to find their renewal, their strengthening. Let the nations, the heathen nations, renew their strength. But what he is now going to do is to challenge both his own people and the godless nations to think particularly about the fact that Jehovah is not just a tribal deity. Now that was the great conviction, you see, in the ancient world. Jehovah was a tribal deity. He was the God of the people of Israel. And his activities, therefore, they thought, were confined within the borders of Israel. That was the view of a God in the ancient world, you see. If the God was active at all, he would be active within the confines of the nation which had made him their God. And that's why they often were very afraid to move out of their own nation or the borders in which they lived, because their God was confined to that nation, you see. Now, there's a grave danger of the people of Israel, God addresses this problem again and again, imagining that Jehovah was like that. But in actual fact, Jehovah is the God of the whole earth. He is the God who rules the world. And his domain is the entire universe. Heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. He is not therefore a local deity. He is the God of the whole universe. And now they are about to see that this God is going to stretch out his hand into some pagan area of the world and raise up someone who is a ruler in that area of the world and bring him to fulfill his purposes amongst his own people. Now that's the background of the whole of this chapter of Isaiah. What God is going to do is to reach out to the leader of one of the pagan nations and take him up and make him my servant. That's what God is saying. Now, before we go any further, just let's put the lid on that for a moment and say to ourselves, isn't it easy for us to think that we could never have this idea of God? That we could never imagine that God was just the local deity, you know, confined to our area 
of the world. And yet, isn't it so easy for us to imagine that God is either confined to the white Anglo-Saxon community, or to the Western world, or to our own civilization? And now at some times, you know, you can tend to, to think in terms of us and them, you know. Us in the West and them in the East, the pagan godless people in the East and us in the West. And then within recent months in our own times, we see God reaching out and taking up people in pagan civilizations and doing mighty things by his outstretched hand and holy arm, which leave the effete Western world gasping. We need to recognize this. We can very easily imagine, just as they imagined, that the capital of true religion was Jerusalem. One of the reasons I have little doubt that God allowed Jerusalem to be laid waste was to teach them that God didn't need Jerusalem. We can very easily imagine that the capital of the Christian religion is this country or America or somewhere like that, you know. My friends in the Far East tell me that without doubt, uh, and other people here would know more about it than I, the the center of gravity of the evangelical world is moving away from the West. And by the end of this century, it would be interesting to speculate where it might be. Very significant thing, you know. But God is certainly not tied to one place. What he is, though, he is tied to his people. He is committed to his people. And that's one of the messages of this 41st chapter of uh, Isaiah. Uh, he is a God who no matter what his people may do to him, is going to remain faithful to them. That's not soft, of course, but faithful. He will never desert them. He will never forsake them. He will never leave them until he has finished what he has set about doing in them. And so you get him saying to them uh, in chapter 41 in the passage, we read, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. This is the picture of God that Isaiah gives to us. Now, um, this God is now about to explain to them in chapter 41 that he is going to raise up a pagan king to serve his purposes. He is the one who will give this one from the east, verse 2, whom God will stir up power to act as his servant and instrument. And so God begins to meet at the place of debate 
with the nations, and he asks, Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? Now, uh, as I was saying earlier on, in verse 25, he is called not just one from the east, but one from the north who comes from the rising sun, which is from the east. Now, you might wonder if Isaiah had the same problem with his sense of direction as I have, but in fact what he is saying is, this figure comes from the east. We'll see in a moment that it's Persia he comes from. But when he comes to uh, Judah, he will come from the north because the route by which he comes will be down from the north. He has to come round by that fertile crescent that we found out about last year, and he will come from the east, but then come down towards Judah from the north. So in the strictest sense, he comes from the east via the north. Uh, that is from the rising sun, and from the north. And uh, he is going to come as Jehovah's servant. Now, there are two questions about this figure. One, who is he? And two, what is he? Well, the answer to the first question, who is he, is gradually clarified for us in these chapters. He is a figure, a great and powerful figure, who is going to demolish one nation after the other and leave a trail of destruction behind him as he progresses throughout the ancient East. But ultimately, we get his name. He is introduced to us here in chapter 41, verse 2, as the one whom Jehovah calls in righteousness to his service. But then in chapter 44, verse 28, if you turn over there, you will find that he is named. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. And in verse 1 of chapter 45, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him. And here's another description of these mighty things that are going to be done through this man Cyrus, to strip kings of their armor, to open doors so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and level the mountains, break down gates of bronze, and so on. Now Cyrus was the king of Persia in the middle of the 6th century B.C. C-Y-R-U-S is how you spell his name. And he reigned from the year 559 B.C. to the year 530 B.C. And it is simply a matter of history that when the people of God were in Babylon, instead of God sending an army from Jerusalem to deliver them, he stretched out his hand and raised up Cyrus, the king of Persia. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, invaded Babylon. The Babylonian Empire came to an end 
because of the ascending power of the Persian Empire under Cyrus. And just at this time in the flow of history, God was ordering things that a mightier power than Babylon arose and overwhelmed the Babylonians and Cyrus became the ruler of Babylon. Now, the amazing thing was that Cyrus woke up one morning and said to himself, there are so many of these Jews here in this land of Babylon. And somebody sent him word that Jerusalem, their capital, lay in ruins. So if you like to turn back to the book of Ezra, um, which comes a good bit before Isaiah, you know, and before Psalms, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. You all learned in Sunday school, of course. And the book of Ezra, chapter 1 You'll see how this works out. Ezra 1, verse 1, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold. And he said, everything they need you give to them. But the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, and Cyrus became the Lord's servant. You know, Mikhail Gorbachev can become the Lord's servant in exactly the same way. Cyrus was a pagan, you know. But because the Lord is the God of the whole earth, we need to get this vision of history. And especially in these days when the flow of it before our eyes is so very remarkable. And uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia, simply in obedience to God, um, commanded the people from Judah to get back to Jerusalem and build the temple. So he is called, and this is the answer to the second question, who is he? He is Cyrus, this man. What is he? He is called the servant of Jehovah. Now you will know, of course, that Jehovah has many servants. Uh, for example, in chapter 41, verse 8, Israel is called my servant. You, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. And this, of course, is why God persists uh, with his people. Um, 
And this is why you find this concept of the servant of Jehovah repeated so often throughout this part of Isaiah. Sometimes it is Israel, sometimes it's a remnant of Israel, sometimes it's a pagan figure like Cyrus, but gradually we are aware that people like Cyrus are just a prelude for an infinitely greater work of redemption which God is going to accomplish and which Isaiah gradually begins to unfold through the picture of the redemption of his people out of Babylon. And that servant figure is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what comes through once you get, well, you get need to go no further than the next chapter, verse 1 of chapter 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and so on. Now, of course, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, that quotation is identified as being about Jesus. So, of course, this is the servant of Jehovah. But Cyrus the king and Israel as a people and the remnant of Israel out of Judah, they are all servants of Jehovah. Until this narrows down, you notice, to the one solitary figure when God says, Behold, my servant. He is the one who bore our sin and carried our sorrow. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He is the picture of the perfect, selfless servant of Jehovah. And then after that, the picture broadens out again. Because you see, God designs to have servants who are patterned after the servant Savior. And he means us in our service to live by that pattern. And that's the whole point of everything that the New Testament has to say to us about being like Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who took upon him the form of a servant. You be like that, says Paul, so that that spirit invades the whole of the Christian church. Now what this is saying to us is that God's people have not been forsaken or forgotten by God. He is raising up and casting down. He is choosing and calling those who will be his servants. He is even dealing in the great political and military scenes of the ancient world. Why? Why is he doing all this? Why is he raising up Cyrus? Well, he's doing it because he's committed and covenanted to his own people. And he says to them, I have chosen you, and I will not forsake you. And that is the background against which 
Isaiah speaks to us about the four great contrasts that he wants to paint to us in this uh, chapter. Let me just mention to you what they are because they're very obvious in the text and you'll see them, I'm sure. There are four great contrasts in this kind of debating chamber that God is in with the nations. And the first contrast is the contrast between the ultimate insecurity of those who trust in idols and the absolute security of those who trust in the Lord. That's verses 5 to 13. Let's just look at it briefly. The islands have seen it. That is, they have seen Cyrus coming through the ancient world and turning to dust his enemies, as verse 2 tells us. But verse 5 says, The islands have seen this and fear the ends of the earth tremble. Now, here is how the pagan nations deal with this kind of problem, you see. They are faced with the mighty power of Cyrus, the political and military situation that they face is fearful and fearsome. How do they react to it? Well, they react to it by running to gods of their own making. That's the point of these verses 5, 6, and 7. They run to gods of their own making. So he says, the islands have seen it and fear. The ends of the earth tremble. They approach and come forward. Now, where do they get their help from? Notice, each helping the other and saying to his brother, be strong. Now, I hate to tell you at this point, but I've heard two or three sermons from this passage encouraging one another to help one another and say to each other, be strong. The craftsman encourages the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer spurs on him who strikes the anvil. He says of the welding, it is good. Now, I've heard sermons on this. One of them, I regret to tell you, in our own church one at a kind of a trades guild service. And somebody came, preached on this and said, this is the picture. The man who is the an uh, hammering the anvil encourages the goldsmith and says it's well welded. They encourage one another and help one another. The only problem is, you see, that they're making idols. Did you notice? They help each other, and one says to his brother, Be strong, the craftsman encourages the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer spurs on him who strikes the anvil. He says of the welding, It is good. He nails down the idol so that it won't topple. And the idea is, you see, these people have nowhere to go except to each other. That's the terrible thing about them. They run to one another and say, we need to encourage one another because there's no other dimension in life. Now that's a marvelous picture of the world as we live in it today. People have only to go to one another, you know. They are seeking each other. That's why one of the great cries 
is finding help from each other, whether it's at the lowest level of the agony ant, or the highest level of seeking counsel from somebody. And the greatest, most burgeoning industry today is counseling. Everybody is wanting counseling. Because we have to go to each other. We have no other place to go. Now you will notice, I hope, that I'm not dismissing either agony ants or counselors. Don't go away saying that. That would be to miss the point. But the point is that this is modern society without God and without any other hope except at the human level. That's the situation. Now God says, verse 8, But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear. What a contrast. For I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Now that's the Lord, you see. That's the Lord. And oh, what a, what a contrast there is between the ultimate insecurity of people who are trusting in men, in their man-made idols, and those who are trusting in the Lord. That's the first contrast. Here's the second. It's a contrast between how God's disobedient people view themselves and what God plans in his wisdom and power to make them. That's verses 14 to 16. Now, how do God's disobedient people see themselves? Well, you ask yourself, how do I, when I'm God's disobedient child, how do I see myself? Well, I'm ready to acknowledge that I am just, I am a worm and no man. And God says to them, do not be afraid, O worm Jacob. O little Israel. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Now, you know the picture of the worm. The worm, you, you, the point about it is you can't get lower, you know. Everybody tramps on it. And yet, God says, I mean to make you a threshing sledge. Now, I used to have difficulty in, in understanding what God was promising. But I think it's this that to the worm who is under every plow and every threshing machine, God says, I'm going to make you a threshing machine and you will go over the land, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. 
You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. So there's the second contrast. Let me just point out the third to you, racing against time. Verses 17 to 20 is the contrast between life outside the will of God and life inside the will of God. Here it is in verse 17, life outside the will of God, the poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. That's, of course, what they were saying when they went to Babylon, you know. By the rivers of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And their tongues clave to the roof of their mouth. Not because there wasn't water there, but because they teased them and tempted them. Sing us one of the Lord's songs, they said. And they replied, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? We hanged our harps on the willows and we wept when we remembered Zion. And you know, there was a bitterness in Babylon that they would never have believed when they were turning their faces towards it because they had disobeyed the Lord and wouldn't listen to him. And as they walked out of the will of God day by day by day for years, they wouldn't believe the bitterness there would be in Babylon. But it came. And this is another picture of it. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. They are longing for satisfaction and cannot find it. But the Lord says, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Now notice how God is going to turn all the barren places into places flowing with water and vibrant with life. I will make rivers flow on barren heights, springs within the valleys, pools in the desert, springs in the parched ground, trees growing in abundant cedar, acacia, myrtle, olive, pines, fir, cypress. What a, a prodigal variety of growth so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. And it really is true, you know, that life outside the will of God is like a barren wilderness where no water is, and life inside the will of God, whatever its pressures and trials and difficulties may be, it is always like a land flowing with his abundance. Here's the last contrast. Contrast between the ultimate insecurity of those who trust in idols and the absolute security of those who trust in the Lord. The contrast between how God's disobedient people view themselves and what God plans to make them. The contrast between life outside and life inside the will of God. And fourthly, the contrast between the powerlessness of idols and the power of the living God. This is the challenge in verse 21. You see the legal 
element in it again. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your argument, says Jacob's king. And then he challenges the idols to do something. And of course, that's exactly what they're unable to do. Tell us what is going to happen, he says. Foretell the future to us. Do something in the end of the day. Isaiah would have made a great advocate, I think. Raj, he would have done well in the court of session. He would have done wonderfully, you know, getting the arguments going. And then at the end, he says, do something. Do something, will you? And of course, the idols just stand there because they're dead. And that's the difference. The living God is able to do for his children far more than they could ask or think. He is a God who has power. Power far beyond the bounds of his own people's life. Power that goes to the ends of the earth. And so he says, I have stirred up one from the north, and he comes. Now, the trouble is, you see, if you just notice at the very end of the chapter, and with this we finish, as they look, he says, I look, verse 28, but there is no one, no one among them to give counsel. No one to give answer when I ask them. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. And Isaiah has been sent to tell them of the one, you remember, who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father prince of peace and he is the servant of Jehovah to whom Isaiah points we are in the glorious position this evening that he has come and we know him and the prophecy of Isaiah has come to us in a different kind of power altogether. Would God that we might know it in all its rich You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.